Let me ask you this. You're listening to the NK News podcast, so you know more about North Korea than most. But how about the South? To really understand what's happening on the peninsula, you need to know about South Korea. And now you can, through our new Korea Pro news and analysis service. This is not your average news service. It's a thoroughly researched analysis of South Korea's politics, society, and economy from an international perspective. But you know what the cherry on top is? The absolute lack of commercial influences. No ads, no sponsored articles. It's just pure, objective analysis by a team of qualified specialists. And the best part? As a listener of this podcast, you get a 25% discount. All you have to do is use the coupon code PODCAST during your sign-up. So head over to careerpro.org slash podcast and start your journey with CareerPro. That's careerpro.org slash podcast. Podcast listeners, welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko's Wetsuit. This episode is, or this part of the episode, is recorded on Tuesday, the 24th of October. And I'm joined via Zoom by my good colleague, Ifang Bremer. Ifang, welcome back on the show. Thank you, and good morning. Good morning. Uh, so we've got a couple of stories to talk about that you've written in the last week. The first one is a very sad story about a, a woman who is one of many, uh, a North Korean woman, one of about 2,000 people who are currently being detained in China and can expect to be forcibly sent back to North Korea. Uh, but there's something different about this woman, this kind of a first case where this has happened. Tell us the story, Ifan. Yeah, so for months now, rights groups and also UN have raised the alarm that reportedly some 2,000 North Koreans are being held in Chinese detention centers awaiting their forced repatriation back to the DPRK. And you have to understand that North Korea hermetically closed its borders in 2020 to prevent the spread of COVID-19. And ever since, any undocumented North Koreans that were caught by Chinese authorities have just been put in these Chinese prisons. And that number has accumulated to about 2,000, according to UN estimates. Uh, and yesterday, for the first time, we actually family member of one of the people who is imprisoned in China filed an appeal to the UN. And now we, for the first time, you know, have a face to this story, actually, like an actual person with a name and age and picture. And that is, I think, a really important development. Right. That I've never, uh, I mean, I've been watching this issue for 20 years and I don't recall that ever happening before. Which agency of the United Nations is specifically being called upon to help here? Because there's so many different ones. Right. So in this particular case, the aunt of one of the detainees who uh, actually resides in South Korea appealed to the UN Working Group on Enforced uh, or Involuntary Disappearances. Ah. And what that does is that <clears throat> it's basically a questionnaire. It's called an urgent appeal. Mm. So family members can address this working group and say, I know someone who's being detained right now through obviously an unfair way. And you should address that as soon as possible with the member state involved, in this case, China. Uh, and if the UN working group uh, approves that appeal, they will actually, through diplomatic channels, 
reach out to Beijing about this particular case and try to put pressure on the authorities to either release that person, get them access to proper lawyer, those kind of things. So that's basically what happened yesterday. Right. Um, and there have been many North Korean defectors detained in Chinese prisons, I guess for decades, but this group of 2,000 people that has been detained since 2020, this is definitely the first time that you know, we see, we actually know of a particular person who's part of this, and it's no longer this anonymous large number of people. Yep. Uh, and I think that's really uh, significant in also getting more attention to the issue. Right. T tell us this woman's name and, and what we know about her. So this is 36-year-old Kim Sonhyang, a mother of two, and she has been held in a Chinese prison uh, reportedly since May 2022. Mm. So uh, what is known about her is that she escaped North Korea to China in 2016, mm -hmm. and her broker who helped her escape forced her to marry a Chinese man. That is sadly quite common. And in May 2022, Kim was arrested for violating COVID-19 prevention laws while receiving smuggled goods from North Korea. Ah, so, okay. she was, so she wasn't caught simply for being a North Korean in China. She was caught for actually engaging in uh, in trade uh, across the border. Yes, and uh, undocumented North Koreans living in China cannot work legally, and therefore many rely on you know cross-border trade to make a living. So this is definitely not uncommon. Yeah. Um, but at the time, she was sentenced to a year of labor in a prison in China. However, earlier this month, October 2023, uh, Ms. Kim and about 70 other North Korean SKPs were transferred from a labor camp in Liaoning province to Baishan City Detention Center in Jilin province, right. much closer to the North Korean border, and a detention facility that's known to be a starting point for forced repatriations to North Korea. Right. Your, your article, uh, which was uh, published uh, just yesterday, titled Family Appeals to UN to Stop Repatriation of North Korean Women in China, uh, has a, a photograph of Kim Sun-young, as well as an aerial, or sorry, satellite photograph of the Baishan det City Detention Center. Uh, and you include testimony from a, a North Korean refugee who was detained at that prison. Yeah, so yesterday, quite unexpectedly, I went to a, a press conference here in Seoul, uh, like you know, so many press conferences that we go to as journalists, but this time, yeah, it, it was it was very special because North Korean SKP who now lives in South Korea and who actually been detained in the same prison where Ms. Kim is believed to be detained, had a very powerful testimony about her, what she experienced there. Yeah. Um, and then she 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 told press that she had been beaten there by Chinese guards. And, this... and not just beatings, but beatings with electric uh, batons. Yes, that's right. That's right. And after that, when she was forcibly repatriated to North Korea. Yeah. She was further tortured and abused while back in the North uh, during interrogations because North Korea considers these people who are caught undocumented in China as often as traitors, right? They want to know, did you want to defect to South Korea? Mm. And so they can expect to have at least a very thorough interrogation that could likely involve torture. And after that, Many of them, we know that from testimonies, will be imprisoned for many years in labor camps. Now, of course, uh, China, um, this is nothing new, that China has been forcibly repatriating North Koreans uh, for decades. 
because it has a, a strong relationship with the North Korean government and it doesn't recognize the refugee status of North Koreans who cross the border into China. But what's new here, I guess, is that this is because of the, the COVID pandemic is we have such a large and unprecedented large number of uh, North Korean, some of them refugees and some of them simply looking for a better opportunity in China, but they're all being sent back uh, in, in large groups. And, uh, and we haven't seen that before. Exactly. So before COVID-19, this would happen on a rolling basis. So you'd mm. have these small batches or maybe like even on a person to person basis of these forced repatriations. And now we see this really large scale, you know, 2000 people that are reportedly being repatriated in batches, you know. Uh, so earlier yeah. this month, South Korean media reported that a large number of these 2000 people were driven to China at night in trucks from China to North Korea. Right? Right. That is exactly what activists have been trying to raise the alarm and trying to prevent for many months. And it seems, unfortunately, without success. Yeah, we hope that in this case that there'll be, you know, that the UN working group on enforced or involuntary disappearances will take some action. How is it that uh, the aunt of Kim Son Young, here, who lives here in South Korea, how is it that she knew that Kim Son Young was was imprisoned in China? So, according to Kim Tae Hoon, who was the the lawyer of the aunt, who was at the press conference that I attended uh, yesterday. Miss Kim was able to bribe a Chinese guard to get a telephone call. Mm -hmm. And she relayed that information to her aunt through that phone call. And that's how we know about her case. And also about she she gave a little bit of context about other North Koreans who also detained with her, ah. allegedly a group of 70 people. So that's uh, reportedly how it happened. Yeah, oh, that that's uh, very uh, fortunate and, and, and really unprecedented in this case. What's the South Korean government saying about this case or about similar cases? So South Korean government has also been raising the alarm on this issue, but it's been much more careful with directly taking action towards China. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, they're taking a very careful approach. And some activists are also getting slightly annoyed at this point, because on the one hand, domestically, you have ministers and officials saying, you know, this is one of the worst human rights crises to face the the world right now. Yep. And on the other hand, what some activists that I've been sp speaking to would like to see is, for example, to have the Chinese ambassador be summoned. Yeah, here in Seoul. Here in Seoul. And interestingly yep. enough, also this week, and I have to read back on my own report. Yeah, South Korean ambassador Junggu Hwang at the UN General Assembly for example, avoided calling out Beijing directly when he was raising this issue of this forced repatriations happening. And he only referred to China China constantly throughout his testimony as a third country without actually, you know, naming China. Now, why and, do you think he's doing that? I mean, I can only speculate when it comes to that. Uh, South Korea has huge uh, trade relations with, with, with China, of course, and yeah. uh, it's taking a very... Yeah, careful approach, seemingly. But at the same time, what this signals to both family members and activists is, you know, it makes them wonder how serious are you taking this issue? Is it just rhetoric? Yep. Or are you actually gonna, yeah, do everything you can to prevent these thousands of people from being repatriated and actually being tortured potentially?
Right. It's uh, yeah. It's, it's certainly a, a very difficult and sensitive position for the South Korean government there, because on the one hand they want to, in this case, help the refugees, but on the other hand, if they're trying to work out a deal with China, then they want to do that through what they call quiet diplomacy rather than calling China out publicly. That's uh... exactly that. That might we 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 don't know what's happening behind the scenes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah wow. Uh, do you have any any thoughts on this uh, story? Uh, for me, it's just it's it's extremely sad. And one of the things that struck me yesterday at the this press conference of the the aunt's lawyer yeah. is that he was saying, you know, there's so much happening in the world right now, right? Yeah. You have uh, the Israel and conflict with Hamas, and you have uh, the situation in Ukraine, and it's so incredibly difficult to get the world's attention uh, right. to uh, any kind of human rights crisis related to North Korea because. These awful stories about detention, torture, even execution have been going on for decades and frankly, not much is changing. And then when there's all this drama in the world, yeah, you can you can kind of sense this despair, like how can we make people care? And that's always the thing that yeah, actually makes it also quite sad for me as a journalist, because I also wonder how to address this issue in in a way that it, you know, actually reflects the tragedy. Right. Well, we'll have to keep uh, watching to see whether the UN Working Group does indeed uh, call out uh, or or contact China about this and see whether China chooses to respond or not. Uh, thanks for uh, telling us about this story, uh, Ifeng. For our second one today, we've got a an update on the uh, the US soldier Travis King who uh, fled to North Korea and then was released last month. Uh, tell us the news on him. Yeah. So late last week, news started coming out. I think Reuters was the first one to report that U.S. soldier Travis King, who fled to North Korea in July and was released last month in September, has been charged with soliciting child pornography. So he's back in the U.S. right now. Right. Desertion and six other violations of U.S. military law. And all of these crimes that he's accused of, these presumably happened before he ran across the demilitarized zone, right? These are not new things that he's expected of doing since his release. Is that correct? Exactly. So pretty quickly after the Reuters report, we at NK News, uh, me and my colleague Shreyas Reddy were able to get the charging documents ah. uh, that show all these charges that Travis King is facing. Yep. And this, all these things allegedly happened before he ran across the border into North Korea. So I see. it gives us, you know, perhaps a little bit of a better idea what motivated him, I yeah. guess? What what motivated him in, in running across the DMZ, you mean? Yeah, what motivated him to, you know, dash across the Intercreen border. Yeah. Because that's the thing that everyone's wondering, right? Why did he do this? Like unprecedented, right. really extreme action. And before this charging sheet was released to to press, yep. uh, North Korea itself, state media said that. King crossed into the DPRK because he faced racism and abuse in the U.S. military. Yep. And he sought refuge because he was you know, disillusioned with the unequal American society, quote unquote. And now this obviously shines quite a different light. That being said, he's being charged. He's not yet sentenced or, you know, uh, right. for any. There's a presumption of innocence until proven guilty. Yeah, exactly. But the it is it is interesting that we never heard about these charges beforehand. That these are coming out uh, in public quite late. Well, we knew from the USFK, United States Forces Korea, and other U.S. authorities that King was allegedly a little bit of a troublemaker. 
Yes. So we know that he's been in in trouble during his time in South Korea. Right. He's he's even been in in, a, in detention for a while for uh, not not huge misdemeanors, right? Small things like swearing to South Korean police, uh, damaging a police car, uh, physically assaulting a ROK national, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So he he was reportedly a little bit of a troublemaker before, but this is obviously quite another level of crimes that he's being accused of right now. Yes, as well as the accusation of solicitation of child pornography and possessing child pornography, there was also, I was surprised to read that he was accused of hitting or kicking a sergeant and hitting a second lieutenant. Now, Travis King was a was a private, so that could lead to all kinds of uh, military uh, charges, I would imagine. Yeah, and what, what I don't know yet, I know that he escaped basically from Incheon Airport, right? So going yeah. back to what happened, he was set to go back to the US to face some kind of disciplinary action. Right. I don't know if that was already related to these charges that yeah. are being presented right now. It could well be, right? And then he was able, after going through the security at the airport, to basically go back and leave the airport once his uh, his minders were uh, out of sight. And that's, yeah, basically how he managed to to escape. Yeah, so it looks like Travis King's in a lot more trouble than we already knew he was. Readers or listeners can find out more by looking at the story titled U.S. Soldier Who Fled to North Korea Charged with Desertion Soliciting Child Porn by Ifang Bremer and Shreyas Reddy, published on the 20th of October on the NK News website. Ifang, thank you very much for uh, coming on the show today and telling us about this. Please keep following up on both these stories and uh, yeah, keep us informed. Thank you, Jacko, for having me. Thanks, Ifang. Bye-bye. Attention, North Korea portfolio professionals. Are you in need of more than just sloppy and spotty South Korean news coverage on the DPRK? If so, I present to you NK Pro. Born from the established news-gathering reputation of NK News, NK Pro leverages staff experience and top-notch technology to provide subscribers with superior knowledge and tools to achieve their goals. Expect daily analysis, exclusive tools, and a suite of research tools that cover everything from North Korean state media to the whereabouts of DPRK vessels and aircraft. How cool is that? In a world where the landscape of North Korea seems unknowable to many, NK Pro cuts through the noise and provides you with the quality, reliability, and timeliness you need. Stay ahead, stay informed, and master the landscape with NK Pro. Trust me, it's a game changer. Interested? Visit nknews.org professionals to claim your free 30-day trial of NK Pro. Once again, that's nknews.org professionals. For today's long interview, I'm joined by Paul Q. Min Lee, President of Divided Families USA. Welcome on the show, Paul. Thank you, Jacko. Since 2016, Paul Q. Min Lee has been part of and is now the President of Divided Families USA, an organization dedicated to facilitating closure for elderly Korean Americans who have been separated from their family members in North Korea as a result of the Korean War, and is the co founder and co host of the Divided Families podcast, a platform for connecting stories of family separation. He's currently the Understanding Conflict Trust Fellow at the Corrie Miele Community, Northern Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation organization, 
and is also a member of the National Committee on North Korea. You can find Paul on Twitter at Paul Cumin Lee. We'll put a link in the show notes. Paul, what is Divided Families USA? Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Jaco, and for asking that question. Divided Families USA, or DFUSA, is an organization now made up of volunteers and mostly younger Korean Americans. So Korean Americans like myself in our Mm -hmm. 20s, some in our 30s, and mostly who have some link to family separation from the Korean War. And my understanding... What's your link, just to interrupt there? Yeah, my understanding uh, and my link is that in 2016, so this was not long after my maternal grandfather had passed away, and he, his family had originally been from Hangedo, which is now mm. part of North Korea. And he had been, he had also served in the Korean War as part of um, the South Korean forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, after he passed away, I had seen this documentary called The Divided Families Film, which mm-hmm. was directed by Jason Ahn, uh, who's a physician in California. And Divided Families USA was kind of an offshoot out of the film in order to raise awareness about uh, the history of this issue, the fact that there are separated families from the Korean War in the U.S., not only on the Korean Peninsula, and to share this message, especially with younger generations. Right. And, and so that, that's, obviously, that's how you got involved. That's where you came into it. Tell us how you spent the last summer. Yes. So it's been quite dynamic, high-octane summer. So for two months, No, really just one month in July, I was traveling across the U.S. to seven different cities. I was able to interview 26 Korean Americans who have been separated from their family in North Korea. And this project is called Letters to My Hometown, or 고향에게 보내는 편지 in Korean. Mm -hmm. And the idea is to record a message that these elderly Korean Americans would like to send to their family members in North Korea if they're and and in the hope that one day the family members in North Korea are able to receive and listen to this message and to try to raise awareness again about this issue to younger generations because time is running out. Right. So the the Letters to My Hometown project, was that part of the Divided Families USA? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it was uh, part of Divided Families USA you know, I had been thinking of, and you know, some of the other team members uh, for DFUSA had been thinking of some kind of storytelling project. Again, inspired by the film for mm-hmm. quite some time, uh, especially during the pandemic. And yeah. for a long time, we were trying to do three things at once. The first one was to try to work with the first generation, so these elderly Korean Americans themselves, to maintain an unofficial registry. So a list of divided families across the country. So as you Mm -hmm. may know, South Korea, the Ministry of Unification, has very detailed statistics on South Korean citizens. But in the U.S., there's no no formal system for accounting for divided families. Do you have an idea of the approximate number? Yeah, well, on our list, we had um, at least the one that I was helping manage was about 100 or so names. Mm -hmm. But confident, especially after the summer project, that they're the very least several hundred, if not thousands more. But again, there's never been an official survey done in the US. So we're not sure about this. But you know, that was the first aim that we were trying to do was work with the divided families themselves to have this registry. And then the second thing we were trying to do was 
advocacy, so political advocacy. So to, we, to the United States Congress? To the U United States Congress, right. So you may have seen that this past December, through the National Defense Authorization Act, there was a piece kind of thrown in there about Korean-American divided families, which used to be called the Divided Families Reunification Act, co-sponsored by Congresswoman Grace Meng. But there have been different pieces of legislation in the past two decades, really, uh, related to Korean-American divided families. So our organization was trying to push for those pieces of legislation. So, you know, many people such as Hannah Kim, who I know has been on the NK News podcast, have really been staunch supporters of that, as well as organizations like uh, the American Friends Service Committee, AFSC, which mm -hmm. is sponsoring this project, Letters to My Hometown. And then the third piece was finding some way of storytelling, capturing these stories and sharing them with a broader audience. And I guess the impetus for this project was that actually the day that the National Defense Authorization Act passed, I found out that my, my other grandfather, my paternal grandfather, had suddenly passed away. Mm. And he had passed away without knowing what happened to his older brother, who uh, he had been separated from during the Korean War. So he hadn't heard from or been able to see for the past uh, 70 years. So I think, yeah, that was, uh, that was really the personal motivation for me to mm. try to capture these stories and this feeling that I wish I had been able to ask a bit more to my own, both of my grandfathers of, you know, stories yeah. about North Korea, stories about their relatives uh, who are presumed still in North Korea and anything they would want to say to them. Mm -hmm. uh, so this project asked those three questions, basically, of, mm -hmm. you know, number one, what do you remember about your hometown? Mm -hmm. Number two, what do you remember? What are some of the memories of your family members from North Korea? And then finally, if they could hear this message, what would you want to say to your family members in North Korea, how, having now resettled in the U.S.? Now, you were able to talk to 26 uh, of these elderly people from North Korea and, and get their stories. But as you said, that if there's a, possibly a thousand more, then that's a, it's a drop in the ocean, but it's a start. But I, I wonder what this trip did to you emotionally. Obviously, it's got to be hard for the interviewees themselves. But what about you as the secondhand observer, you know, recording the interviews? Yeah, you know, this is something that a lot of people had warned me about and <laughs> about how heavy this could be, you know, including mm. friends at AFSC, including people like Jason Ahn, who had done this project. And, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not the first one to try to record stories of family separation. There's been a film called Still Present Pass and Legacy of Forgotten War by Ramsey and Dean Borche Lim, for example. And it's this multimedia exhibition capturing the sense of you know, Han and collective trauma from the Korean War, uh, along with the Divided Families film. And to be honest, ultimately, as you said, the, the mission of Divided Families USA is to facilitate some kind of closure mm. for this generation. And the sense of closure after separation has been so difficult and elusive for so many people. Yeah. And in a sense, I, I felt like I was searching for a sense of closure myself after working on this issue for I guess, for the past more than seven years mm. myself. So on one hand, I felt like it was quite heavy. Uh, my heart felt quite heavy listening to and carrying a lot of these stories because 
as you may know, a lot of these stories, a lot of the associations with North Korea, whether in the in South Korea or the US, are associated with shame mm. in South Korean society or even after moving to the US and desire to fit into mainstream society. So, you know, whether to the general public, much less to their own immediate families, a lot of these interviewees were sharing these messages and memories and stories for the first time. Mm. And most of these stories were in Korean, which I grew up speaking uh, largely thanks to growing up with my own grandparents. Yeah. And But because of the language gap and, and cultural gap with their own immediate families in the U.S., so a lot of the interviewees, children or grandchildren, are not fluent in Korean. Mm. Uh, a lot of them felt quite relieved in a way or grateful that someone younger was interested in hearing their stories and could actually understand their stories. And, you know, the hope is, I mean, the plan is we're partnering with an organization called Korean American Story mm -hmm. for the next year to produce the stories. And that means basically editing, translating, transcribing the stories so that they're accessible to an English speaking and a Korean speaking audience. So, you know, it, it was quite heavy. Mm -hmm. is what I'm trying to say, but on the other side, I, I do feel a sense of relief or motivation or conviction in a way that, you know, this is, yeah, this is the kind of project that needs to be done at Let this time. Let me interrupt and, and, and ask, I know that uh, closure is an important thing, but, uh, you know, on the one on the one side, you've got somebody telling their story, and that's a, a closure for them. On the other side, I wonder, do you see a feasible way in which their long lost relatives in North Korea or their descendants can ever see these video messages? Yeah, that's something that we're working on actually so for the south korean ministry of unification you know as you may know there have been over 20 there have been 21 rounds of these in-person family reunions inter-korean family mm -hmm. reunions between citizens of north and south korea uh, since 2000 i believe but even beyond that i think what's perhaps less known is that there have been i think seven rounds of video reunions so video mm -hmm. conferencing calls kind of like what we are doing right now, yeah. as well as recorded messages. So messages and letters that have been exchanged across the two countries. But what's a bit unfortunate, I would say, is that, you know, on the South Korean side, the Ministry of Unification has recorded, I think, more than 20,000 of these messages. You know, I've been in close touch with the South Korean Ministry of Unification, who, well, this year, actually this month, um, is conducting a, a survey of divided families that includes citizens of the U.S. and mm. uh, and Canada as well, which I would love to talk about a bit later. But anyways, the the point I wanted to make is that you know my understanding is that the South Korean government has only been able to deliver, I think, less than fifty out of these you know more than twenty thousand messages. And again, what I've been told is that this is because the North Korean side has not been willing to accept and deliver mm. these messages or, or due to some kind of political impasse. So in my last trip to DC, I was I was speaking with the Ministry of Unification. I was speaking to folks at the State Department. I was also I've been also in touch with folks at the Red Cross, at the ICRC and the ARC. And unfortunately, currently it seems like although there are signs that North Korea might be starting to open up to foreigners. But still, yeah, it, it didn't look great that mm. in the status quo, North Korea would be amenable to message delivery. But I do think that even if 
it's in a future generation. So it's the children or even grandchildren of the family members in North Korea who see this message that could still help in some kind of closure, because mm -hmm. at least I feel like this kind of trauma of, of severance of family separation is passed on down to generations, mm. even to children, and maybe sometimes even skips a generation down to the third generation. But anyways, uh, I, I do feel like it would help with some kind of closure, as well as forming some kind of human connection that I feel like is often missing in US-North Korea relations. Tell us uh, briefly, if you can, about uh, in-person reunions between Korean Americans and their relatives in North Korea. I remember reading some accounts where uh, some Korean Americans, as early as the 1980s, were able to make trips over to North Korea to visit family members, whereas the people in South Korea had to wait really uh, more or less until the late 1990s before there were uh, repeated uh, in-person reunions. Yeah, that's the that's one of the tragedies, I think. Um, and I think little known facts is that, as you said, I would say several of my interviewees, I think almost half of my interviewees mm -hmm. had actually been able to travel to North Korea, as you said, in the 80s, 90s, 2000s as well. Mm. And many of them had shared photos taken with the relatives in North Korea or of their ancestral homes that they've been able to visit. And these were sometimes, I guess, done through a variety of ways. You know, some were done through connections through Taekwondo delegations between the U.S. and North Korea. Some were done through private brokers in, in Canada or ethnic Koreans in China. Some were done through, you know, personal connection with the DPRK government. Some were done through what's known as the Korean American National Coordinating Council, the KNCC, mm -hmm. as well, which is a it's a it's a non-government, yeah, non-governmental organization, I would say, uh, with close ties to the North Korean government. Mm -hmm. But anyways, again, the point that I wanted to make is that a lot of these people had shared, a lot of the interviewees had shared stories about their visits to North Korea, being able to reunite or sometimes meet their relatives for the first time since they were a baby. Uh, and we're hoping to show some of these photos and stories as part of producing this project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and then one quick anecdote I want to share is that one of my interviewees, he's now in Philadelphia, Mr. Lee, 90 years old this year. And he actually told me that one of his motivations for immigrating to the U.S. in the first place yeah. was because he thought that as a U.S. citizen, there would be more mobility and accessibility for him to travel to his hometown in North Korea and mm. reunite with his family, which he ended up doing. Yep. But as you said, or I don't know if you said, but as you know, uh, since 2017, there's been a ban on U.S. Yep. passport holders traveling to North Korea. Right. So since then, even these kind of unofficial private reunions have not been possible. And I think a lot of people have talked about the travel ban and the importance of traveling to North Korea, including guests on your show, mm -hmm. the podcast. But I think what's even less highlighted is that, I, yeah, I remember one of my interviewees, I think my my second interviewee ever. So this is in the San Francisco Bay Area, I'm a Taekwondo instructor. Yeah. And then there was a, a Vietnam War veteran in Falls Church, Virginia as well. I remember both of them on separate occasions, they shared dozens of letters that they had exchanged with their family members 
in North Korea mm -hmm. after visiting. Was it possible to send letters directly from the United States to their family members or did they have to go through some kind of a broker or uh, or a smuggling ring? No, I mean, at least according to what these interviewees were telling me, they would just put it in the post at the post mm -hmm. office in the US yep. and it would take a while, but uh, yep. they would ultimately receive it in North Korea uh, and mm -hmm. vice versa. But they had told me that since 2017 or 2018, yeah. They had been trying to send more letters, but they had been getting returned. Um, and they weren't sure if it's because of some kind of government re uh, regulation or because of the pandemic. And the State Department officials that I've spoken to, I, I don't mm -hmm. think they're aware of, or they didn't tell me about some kind of policy uh, that yeah. restricts letter exchanges. But I just wanted to highlight that, you know, of course, in-person visits are impossible, but you yeah. would expect that in this day and age, there to be some form of communication, you know. Well, actually, I'm always amazed that yeah. there's been no postal exchange between North and South Korea since 1953. That that's uh, you'd think that in terms of confidence building measures or trust building measures, that that would be uh, an easy place to start. But it's as far as I'm aware, and I, I, again, I'd love to be corrected if I'm wrong. Not a single sack of uh, of letters has been sent uh, across the demilitarized zone. You know, occasionally on a very limited case by case basis, but to actually send up a sack of letters and, and receive one in return, I don't think that's happened since 1953. But the uh, the in person reunions, they're always very fleeting, right? They're only uh, generally for uh, uh, a few hours, maybe a couple of hours on subsequent days, but they're quite fleeting. And, you know, you hear contrasting reports of whether or not a home visit is possible. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. Sometimes there are government people present during the reunion, sometimes they're not. It, it, does that uh, match up with your experience in interviewing these people? Yes, it does. But I wouldn't say it's from my experience interviewing these people because none of my interviewees and I don't think anyone I've met in the U.S. has had the opportunity to participate in these inter-Korean family reunions. And again, I've confirmed but, uh, this. What about the, the American, Korean-American reunion with their relatives in, oh, uh, oh, I see in, what you in mean. North Korea? I, I mean that uh, are their government minders present? Are they allowed to do home visits? Are they fleeting just a couple of hours and then they have to say goodbye? I remember reading a, a very early account of this. I think it's called Darkness at Dawn by Peter Hyun, who went in the early 1980s to, uh, to visit his relatives in North Korea. And if I recall correctly, he had to wait until the very last day of his two-week visit to have a fleeting reunion with some of his family members. I see what you mean. I think it really depends on the interviewee. I think some of them, I, I, the first story that comes to mind is this 95-year-old man in Koreatown, Los Angeles. And he had left behind his pregnant wife in North Korea, his wife who was pregnant oh with, his, with his daughter. He, mm. And he ended up traveling to North Korea, and his wife had passed away by that time, but he was able to meet his daughter, and he had letters from his granddaughter as well. But I remember he was saying that, you know, he wasn't able to actually stay with his relatives, mm -hmm. like stay overnight with his family members yeah. in North Korea. He had to stay at a hotel, I think, on his own. Mm -hmm. But I remember him telling me that he gave them, he gave his family members in North Korea every single piece of clothing that he had brought with him. Oh, so yeah. All he brought back to the hotel room that night was a toothbrush uh, so he can brush his teeth. So uh, yeah, I think I think it really depends. Uh, and I've heard, I've heard that for some interviewees or some of the Korean Americans, even if they're only able to see their family members for a few hours, as you said, or even if they're yeah. reminders, that still means the world to them. Uh, and mm. even if you know their, their letter exchanges 
are being monitored by the North Korean government, um, that's uh, that's still meaningful for them that they have some kind of contact and that they could they can handwriting. On the other hand, I think there are uh, other interviewees and other Korean American divided families who, after visiting North Korea once, they've never wanted to go back. And mm. after receiving one request, one kind of follow up request after their visit to North Korea, and many times, you know, I think one of the things I heard the most during my project is that they've asked for remittances. So basically, funds to be sent back to the yep. family members in North Korea. And I know some of my interviewees had voiced concerns that they weren't sure whether the money they were sending was going to their family members or to the government for some other purpose. So yeah. for that reason, they, they didn't want to continue these exchanges. So I guess what I want to say is there's a split opinion on the form of these family reunions. But I think the consensus is that I think all these family members just want to know what happened to yeah. their, their relatives in the North and, you know, I guess, wish the best for their family members in North Korea and want to maintain some kind of connection. And I think for their family members in the US or South Korea, I think a lot of these interviewees, they wish that the younger generations cared more and, and knew about uh, this history. Uh, because, you know, yeah. I think all of my uh, interviewees, yeah, they're in their 80s and 90s, except for two of my interviewees who are children of divided family members. Uh, so mm. part of the second generation. But I could just see, you know, and I, I could just feel after my own grandparents' stories of how people say time is running out all the time. And as you know, there are several groups of families separated uh, as a result of the division and conflict on the Korean Peninsula. You know, you have your recent North Korean escapees and defectors, you have Koreans sent from Japan to North Korea, you have so many different kind of waves mm -hmm. of divided families. But the reason I feel like this particular group, divided families, is so important and it's so urgent to address this issue is because time really is running out yeah yeah i want to also bring in the uh the japanese korean experience too there's the uh the japanese korean film director yang yong he who has made uh, some very uh moving films about her own family's uh, experiences her two brothers moved, older brothers moved to uh, to north korea yeah that's right and and she never well after a certain period of time she wasn't able to visit them again so for some years she was able to uh, to and that's it's interesting to, to look at the different experiences between the Japanese Koreans, the Korean Americans, and the, the South Koreans. Some of them were able to have more contact, and and you know the Japanese Koreans for decades uh, sent not only people but also uh, goods and uh, and remittances. Uh, so it's interesting to sort of compare those uh, experiences. You mentioned the second generation of divided families. To what extent do you see interest in that second generation to keep this mission going to find their parents? long lost relatives, or does the connection end with the death of the parents for most people? I think in both the US and South Korea, there is a high level of interest, at least out of the people who uh, know about this issue. And I think the statistics from, so the most recent Ministry of Unification survey, I think has a breakdown of kind of interest about this issue by generation. And I don't have the exact figures off the top of my head, but in 2021, I remember the survey saying that even second and, and you know, younger generations, they want to visit their parents or grandparents' hometowns. They want to help their parents or grandparents achieve this kind of closure. 
And I guess just through my experience working with DFUSA um, and working with uh, other volunteers, so college students, young professionals across the country, I just see this interest. And I think not just an interest. So I don't, I don't think it's completely selfless that you know, younger generations, including myself, are doing this. Mm. I think that part of an interest, especially for Korean diaspora, is a sense of, I think, helping address this issue of family separation. I think in a way it helps me process and think through my own identity uh, in a way, because a lot of these family members, a lot of these first generation divided families, they still remember when Korea or maybe Joseon for some people was one country. There was no division mm -hmm. between North and South Korea. And then they faced so many different political environments. So I think at least speaking for myself, I know that working on this issue has helped me think through my own identity as Korean American, part of the Korean diaspora. So I think there's that at stake as well. And I don't know if I can share just a quick story from my summer, I think, to try to highlight this issue, as well as some of the political dynamics in this issue. Is that okay, Giacomo? Okay, yeah. Yeah, so I was in D.C. on the 27th of July, which, as you know, was the 70th anniversary of the armistice that put a ceasefire to the Korean War. And there were a lot of events going on that day. And I remember in the morning, I had attended a, I think they called it some kind of Han ceremony or grief transmutation circle. Mm -hmm. And it was part of this event that was organized by organizations like uh, Women Cross DMZ, mm -hmm. like Korea Peace Now, like the American Friends Service Committee. So organizations that really support engagement with the North Korean government, that support humanitarian aid and travel and all that. And it was an intergenerational event. So there were a lot of different ages, backgrounds reflected, but I saw a lot of young people in the room and they were talking about, you know, a lot of people talk about Han, so it's almost become this cliche phrase. But for the first time in a long time, I felt quite moved by this. It was a kind of a shamanistic Korean ritual with dancing and crying and kind of relieving this collective Han that we have mm. about severance, about separation that the Korean people have faced. So it was a really powerful experience. Later that day, I, I went over to the other side of town uh, to Capitol Hill, uh, where at the Rayburn Building, there was an event uh, honoring veterans of the Korean War. And it was organized by Hannah Kim, uh, you know, a longtime friend of DFUSA, and I know it's been mm -hmm. a guest on the show of Remember 727. Yeah. And it was co-hosted by organizations uh, like KEI, Council of Korean Americans, and I know, you know, I'm sure a lot of guests on the show uh, have been there as well. And you know, that was about honoring the Korean War veterans as well as the US-South Korea alliance. And I think I was one of the, uh, and you know, Hannah had asked me to just share something about uh, divided families and about uh, the project as well that I was working on at the time. And I think I was one of the few people who was in both spaces. That is to say, there was almost no overlap between both spaces. And that makes me uh, to ask the question of, you know, how, how does politics figure into this? I know the Korean-American community 
is divided into those who are more antagonistic to the current North Korean government as opposed to those who are more sympathetic. Uh, and in the middle, somewhere along that spectrum, are those who simply want to accept North Korean government as it is and, and engage with it. To what extent does that impact the work, for example, of uh, Divided Families America or uh, or your Letters to the home, My Hometown Project? Yeah, it, that's one of the uh, unexpected challenges, because at first I, I thought the biggest challenge would be finding enough people to interview. Uh, because mm. so many people, New Jersey, I mean, all over the country had told me, oh, if only you had done this project. 10 years ago or 20 years ago, there was someone in my neighborhood that I knew who has already passed away or now who has dementia and can't remember or is too weak to even uh, meet someone. So that was my original fear. But what ended up being the biggest challenge was that, as you said, on one hand, there's the kind of demographic and health issues of the family members and their desire to find out what happened to the family and to kind of relieve themselves of this of this traumatic experience. On the other hand, they're kind of caught between politics and between North and South Korea. They're caught between politics in the US. They're caught between mm. politics within the Korean American community. And what I mean by that is, of course, between Korean Americans, as you said, some, I think, many elderly Korean Americans from the first generation, given that they have memories of fleeing from uh, the North Korean army's invasion during the Korean War, they have quite anti-communist views. Mm -hmm. um, so this is why a lot of people, they, they don't want to work with the North Korean government through, or through private brokers. They want some kind of reassurance from the U.S. government or the Red Cross in safely meeting with their family members and not supporting any, any other causes. On the other hand, there are some Korean Americans who are willing to do so, as, as I mentioned, some of my interviewees. They're also caught between politics between North and South Korea. As you said, you know, a lot of these family members are, are interested in participating in inter-Korean family reunions. And the South Korean government, they have, I think, 130,000 or so of their own citizens. I think now only about a third of them, so about 40,000 of them on their official registry are still alive. Mm. Um, so, of course, the South Korean government wants to prioritize its own citizens, although yeah. I think recently it's making a move. The administration is trying to signal uh, to prioritize this issue and to try to include overseas Koreans as well. But they're caught in this you know, inter-Korean impasse as well. And then there's the whole geopolitical issue and with, uh, with the U.S. and North Korea and, of course, how often security issues uh, end up becoming paramount even over, you know, I see this issue as both a human rights issue and a humanitarian issue. I, I see it mm. just as a, a human issue. And I know DFUSA has tried to work with both sides of the aisle, per se, not just in Congress, not just in supporting bipartisan legislation, but also both sides of the aisle when it comes to North Korea, North Korea watchers or people who work on North Korea. And I think you, out of Probably, uh, yeah, anyone else I know are familiar with people on all sides of the spectrum when it comes to North Korea. You know, the hardliners who are pushing for regime change or, or people who really are hardcore about engagement and compromise and, yeah, I guess working for peace and humanitarian aid uh, yeah. with North Korea. But oftentimes these two sides don't, uh, don't talk to each other. And I think it's the... The family members, especially these elderly Korean Americans, 
who are caught in the crossfire and who also end up unfortunately being used sometimes as yeah as part of propaganda or as part of the advocacy on on whatever side of the spectrum you're on right let me jump in there yeah north korea likes to blame uh, america for everything bad uh, that happened during the korean war you know, I, I don't know whether you've read the excellent novel by Hwang Sog Young, uh, The Stranger, about uh, the Shinchon massacre of, oh, no, uh, I'll have to check that it took out. place in, in Hwangedo. That uh, the, the North Koreans, um, if you ever go to, uh, they've got this anti-American museum there in Shinchon, in, in which they have very graphic paintings of American soldiers shoving babies down wells and cutting the breasts off of Korean women with uh, with hot iron pincers. But if you you know if you read Hwang Sog Young's novel The Stranger, you, you at the end of it, it it turns out that really what what seemed to happen in Shincheon was all Korean on Korean violence. And but that leads me back to that as Korean Americans, I guess you're in an a um an interesting position there because North Korea on the one hand wants to blame Americans for everything bad that happened, and on the other hand, you know wants to woo Korean Americans too. So how how does that intersect with uh, with what you're doing? Hmm. You know, I think the first thing that I thought of uh, when you were asking that question is that I think a big part of why uh, Korean Americans have not been able to participate in the inter-Korean reunion process, which itself, I think, is is inherently flawed. And I think people like James Foley, uh, who's based in Sheffield, England, mm. uh, have written about this and have interviewed people or people who have participated in inter-Korean reunions and how it could actually cause even more trauma or this kind of double trauma of having to separate from their family members again after just a few days. But I think one reason is because the North Korean government, I think, prefers to deal bilaterally with the U.S. government and include Korean Americans in their bilateral negotiations with the U.S. So if they were lumped in with inter-Korean reunions, that wouldn't be as much of a, I guess, a benefit or an incentive for the North Korean government, because I think whether financially or whether for uh, some kind of political deal, I think uh, these family members do serve some kind of political purpose in U.S.-North Korea relations, whether I, I like it or not. Last section I want to ask you about is you're now in, uh, in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, uh, in fact, and you've also done a, a master's degree in conflict resolution and reconciliation. So how what what are you taking from the uh, Letters to My Hometown project and 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 how do you hope to make something uh, or do you hope to make something bigger of that for uh, you know inter-Korean peace efforts uh, more generally? Yeah, I guess I'll say something about how this connects to uh, Northern Ireland and then uh, kind of hopes for this project. The reason I wanted to come to Northern Ireland in the first place, which might sound quite random to many people. Because I think when people think about comparative studies with Korea, they often think of Germany or uh, maybe Vietnam. Uh, but I think not a lot of people think of Northern Ireland, although Ireland is also a divided country that has a history of uh, colonization by uh, you know, imperial island neighbor, uh, as fratricidal conflict and div prolonged uh, division as well that has separated many communities. But I came because I wanted to study with a professor named Dongjin Kim uh, mm. from South Korea, who compares you know the peace process in Ireland and Korea. But I think it was a big inspiration of the letters to my hometown project 
of one particular experience in Northern Ireland, which is uh, my experience working with, I was interning for, as part of my program, an organization called Healing Through Remembering. Mm -hmm. And it's a non-governmental organization based in Belfast, which has taken up issues of moralization, storytelling related to legacies of the conflict in Northern Ireland. Because since the peace agreement in 1998, the Good Friday Agreement, there's never been this kind of official truth and reconciliation initiative like in South Africa, which I mm. think a lot of people know about. So instead, there have been a lot of these kind of bottom-up, unofficial uh, oral history projects and efforts to record what really happened before these family members, again, pass away. And this is from a conflict that ended in uh, 1998, much less yeah. in 1953, like, like in Korea. So I, I was able to see, I was able to interview about a dozen or so of practitioners of oral history and storytelling in Northern Ireland and see how they recorded the stories, so different methodologies, how they showed them to a broader audience using theater, using education, uh, using different forms of art and storytelling mm -hmm. and see what impact it had on both individual trauma healing and broader societal reconciliation. So when you talk about hopes for the Letters to My Hometown project, uh, again, I'm working with AFSC, Korean American Story. Uh, welcome any other organization that's interested in working on this project. But again, it's to first and foremost, deliver it to the family members uh, in North Korea and to form that kind of reunion. Because mm -hmm. again, the best case scenario is kind of free travel and in-person contact between Korean Americans and North Koreans. But given how that's not possible, letter exchanges, uh, video calls are not possible. I thought that this kind of recording stories and trying to deliver them might be the next best form of closure. But now I think for the next step, I'm thinking about how to actually archive and produce the stories. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think a lot of the interviewees might be in disagreement with each other when it comes to ideology. Um, mm. So you know, all of them agreed to sharing, or the, the interviewees who, whose stories we're going to share, uh, agreed to having them for some kind of educational public purpose, but they might not, you know, they might be at odds with another interviewee uh, for what they think about the North Korean regime, or mm. what they think about Syngman Rhee, um, or what they think about Donald Trump, for example. And I think there's a power in a way kind of uh, for reconciliation or potential for reconciliation in putting these disparate narratives side by side uh, on the same platform. And I think Korean American Story, the plan is to host these stories on Korean American Story website, as well as in in-person installations and in physical exhibits. But I thought that would be a fitting platform for these stories. Have you made an approach or do you intend to make an approach to either the the North Korean permanent mission to the United Nations in New York or to the North Korean embassy in London to try to do something with them, you know, to to get the film sent to uh, to North Korea or to find a way to to have your work represented there or even, you know, to record messages in North Korea, whether it's you doing it or somebody else doing it? Yeah, you've now given me two ideas, two additional ideas I should work with. No, I, I haven't. Uh, I haven't reached out to them about this project, but I, yeah, that's definitely worth considering. I think that does remind me of, you know, when you're talking about where I am now at Corimila, it's this 
Reconciliation Center on the north coast of Ireland. And mm-hmm. I mentioned that because just this past weekend, we hosted about 100 or so, I would say, young people from all over the island of Ireland, from north and south, uh, yeah. from different backgrounds. Some are, you know, uh, pure Irish Callum O'Callaghan, while others have immigrated from places like Zimbabwe or, mm. or Egypt or the Philippines. Anyways, I thought it was just such a powerful example of how, you know, young people, regardless of political affiliation or nationality, whether they have UK citizenship or Republic of Ireland citizenship, can come together. And the idea is for them to feed their ideas into policymaking. So I I just wish there could be something like that for people from the DPRK, the ROK, the US as well. But looking ahead, I, I thought that one example I thought I would share is that in January, Corey Milo were hosting what's called a, a Drawing Hope exhibition, and it's hosted by an uh, organization in South Korea called Okedongmu Children, and they've mm-hmm. worked on humanitarian aid and exchanges between children of uh, North and South Korea, and AFSC is, uh, is partnering on that project as well. But it's basically exhibiting drawings from children uh, in North Korea and South Korea and in the U.S. as well and Japan and um, drawings that these children would like to show to their friends and classmates in these different countries. So I think that's given me some food for thought in how to facilitate and curate these kinds of stories for the Letters to My Hometown project. Well, okay, that, I'm, I'm glad I, I've given you something to think about there. Uh, how can people find out more? Where can where would you direct people to go who are looking for more information or more resources on this? Yeah, I think, well, of course, you can go to dfusa.org, but I think on social media, on Instagram in particular, I think that's perhaps the best place, Divided Families USA, and you can see our partnership with Korean American Story and AFSC as well. And I also uh, started a uh, Substack newsletter, Letters to My Hometown, kind of detailing and reflecting on my journey with the project so far. Okay, I will uh, endeavor to put a link in for those on, on the show notes. Paul, thank you very much for, uh, for coming on the show today and talking about your project. And I wish you well with that. Thanks so much, Jaco. Imagine having the most wide-ranging news, analysis, and opinion on North Korea at your fingertips. Sounds great, right? Well, it's possible with NK News. They publish a truly diverse selection of unique articles every business day and provide you with valuable newsletters and alerts. Opinion writers and journalists include regular podcast guests like Andre Lankov, Jongmin Kim, Chad O'Carroll, Colin Zwerko, Niels Weisenzer, Peter Ward, and Shreyas Reddy. And because I know you'll love the product as much as I do, here's something special for you. Use the code PODCAST to get a $100 discount on your subscription. Redeem this podcast-only special today by visiting nknews.org discount. That's nknews.org discount. So what are you waiting for? Sign up for NK News today and get ahead of the headlines on North Korea. Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our podcast episode for today. Our thanks go to Brian Betts and Alana Hill for facilitating this episode. 
And to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, and fixes the audio levels. Thank you, and listen again next time. (laughs) 